While everybody's getting, getting settled, just a review of the announcements. Uh, there will be a Christmas Eve Sunday morning uh, communion service this Sunday. Also, a reminder that we have new security procedures in place, and we're locking the, uh, the doors at uh, just a few minutes after services start. But there will, on, on Tuesday and Thursday night, there will be somebody uh, at the back door who will be responsible for opening that for those who come in late. Also, um, reminder on the uh, Israel trip, we've had quite a few uh, sign up, and uh, that's good, but we still have room for uh, for many more, and we are um, still putting things together for that trip. Also, a few things still to put together for the D.C. trip. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. It's our opportunity to make sure that we can continue and maintain our ongoing uh, fellowship with God, enjoying our relationship with Him, and it is an opportunity for us to make sure we're prepared to focus on the Word and to study uh, this evening as we uh, come together for Bible class. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have in this freedom in this nation to gather together so regularly to study your word. Uh, Father, we pray that we would not take that for granted, but that we may enjoy and appreciate that every single day, the freedom we have to learn your word, to apply your word, to uh, live in a country where it is we still have the freedom to uh, communicate the gospel to others and to share the wonderful good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray for those in this congregation that are sick. There are two or three that are homebound and uh, dealing with uh, some serious, if not life-threatening, problems. And we pray that you would uh, restore their health and give them uh, strength to recover. Father, we pray for those who are fighting this cold or flu or whatever is going around, that they might rest and be able to recover during this uh, holiday time and not be debilitated by, by this bug that's going around. Father, we pray for us that our focus might be upon you and upon your word, and that that which glorifies you would be a driving force in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1, and we are resuming our study in 2 Samuel. We have been out of 2 Samuel for a few lessons uh, because we were looking at a psalm that David wrote that was took place at the time of 2 Samuel chapter 1 when David learned that Saul and Jonathan had been killed on Mount Gilboa. 
that psalm was a thanksgiving psalm to God, not thankful that God had taken the life of Saul or Jonathan, which might be a typical sin nature, human viewpoint response, but it was thankfulness to God that God had protected and preserved David and would fulfill his promises to David. David is not responding to the death of Saul and Jonathan from a self-centered, self-absorbed uh, framework. He is concerned about the glory of, of uh, God's name, for God's reputation, for God's honor, and for the nation of Israel. That, and that's the focal point that we see in this in this first chapter. Uh, the chapter is comprised of two sections, a narrative section in verses 1 through 16, where David learns of Saul's death, and then there is a lament or an elegy in verses 17 down through 27, where David laments the death of Saul, not because of Saul's inherent greatness or goodness, but because for Israel to be defeated on the field of battle is uh, dishonors God. And it is bringing the nation into a place of subjugation by the enemies of God, the uncircumcised, the Philistines. So that's the focus of this particular particular chapter. As we make this transition from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, there's a few things that I want to say just in terms of, of introduction. Uh, sometimes when we get into Old Testament passages, there are people, and it's common today, I, I, I'm surprised when I hear this, I guess we all get a little restricted in, in our environment here at West Houston Bible Church, but in many, many evangelical churches today, they just don't teach the Old Testament. And there are many people who don't read the Old Testament. And there are even among some within a restricted dispensational theology that don't focus on the Old Testament because they focus on the epistles of Paul, the epistles in the New Testament, because that has primary reference to the church and the church age, and it's very much true. But we can't understand what's going on in the Gospels or what is alluded to many, many times in the epistles of, of the New Testament if we don't have this Old Testament background and Old Testament understanding. And even though the Old Testament isn't written to us, it is still written for us, for our edification, for our understanding. It helps us to understand who God is. It helps us to understand uh, God's plan and purpose in history, and it helps us to understand uh, what God is doing, even uh, in preparation of the Old Testament for the eventual arrival uh, of, of the Messiah. But today we also live in a world where people are so concerned about the here and now and I've, we've heard this, you've heard it, I've heard it for decades that, that, well, it just doesn't seem like the Bible is really that that relevant to us. Um, all of these stories happened several thousand years ago, and how can that have any significance for us? And in this uh, fast-paced, industrial, post-nuclear, post-modern, computerized, virtual 21st century, uh, everything moves so fast, uh, how can any of this have any relationship to us. 
And I know that there are times I hear feedback from people who are reading through their Bible. And I hope that um, many of you are coming as we come to the end of the year, finishing up your reading plans for the year and getting ready to start a new plan uh, in, the, in January. But we hit certain books like Leviticus, books like uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah. I hear a lot of people asking questions about Isaiah. And uh, sometimes even books like Samuel or Kings as to um, what's going on. And when you look especially at Second Samuel, this is a book that, that resonates with contemporary society. Just think of a couple of things that are going on here in the first part of Second Samuel. We are faced first and foremost with the transition of a political administration. We are shifting from King Saul to King David. It's a change from a corrupt, self-indulgent king who cares little about God to a king, a man who is totally occupied with the Lord. We shift from a king who's really unconcerned about obedience to the Torah. Remember, the Old Testament law is the constitution for Israel, and he just doesn't seem to have any respect for Israel's constitution, for the history of Israel, and for carrying on his God-given responsibilities in terms of honoring that constitution, the Mosaic law. In contrast, we have a king in uh, David, who is very concerned about uh, being obedient to the law and carrying out the mandates that are within the law. And specifically with this one instance in chapter 1, we see him still wanting to carry out the, um, the, the law related to uh, killing all of the, those who are in the land that are to be removed by uh, by God, the harem law, not holy war. That term is never used in the Bible, never used in the original language. It's harem, which means to ban or devote this to the, the enemy, to the Lord, uh, in removing them in order to uh, uh, create a a sanctified or set-apart land. And so David is very much concerned about God's righteousness and the application of the Torah, which is to uh, provide Israel with a righteous culture. And it's a change from a king that, remember, he's chosen because he looks like a king. He's head and shoulders about it, uh, above everybody else. And he looked kingly on the outside, but his interior was wrong. His relationship with God was not what it was supposed to be. And David is said to be, again and again, despite his flaws and sins, a man after God's own heart. So there's these contrasts, and, and we can probably make certain applications and observations of similarities between what is going on in this country. We have a culture much like the culture in Israel that is given over to, to uh, spiritual and moral relativism, and is and as you know, this is coming out of the period of the judges, and the verse that is repeated twice in the book of Judges to describe that period going all the way up to the end of uh, Samuel's judgeship, the beginning of the first monarchy, is still true about the people. There was no king in the land, referring to the period of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and that exemplifies uh, our w- modern uh, Western culture. 
The second thing that we see as we read through the pages of Second Samuel is there is more drama going on in, in this book that you can pack into any soap opera or any reality show or Game of Thrones or any of these other shows that are popular today. They're just filled with intrigue and political maneuvering behind the scenes and rebellion against the king. There's lies and conspiracies and deception. There's murder. There are uh, personal revenge, adultery, incest, broken homes, broken marriages, and broken dreams. I mean, how much more relevant can we get than studying a book like this? And then a third observation is that within the context of all these events, which are just like people who are living with corrupt sin natures in corrupt cultures with corrupt governments, what we see is the same thing we see now, and that is that God's grace resonates throughout uh, all of the bad things that are happening, <clears throat> God continues to be faithful. He is going to bless David when he is obedient. He is going to bless David with a special covenant that is going to be the basis for blessing in Israel throughout eternity, the D- Davidic covenant. And so we see just a tremendous testimony uh, to the grace of God throughout uh, Second, <clears throat> Second Samuel. Now, as we begin, I want to review a little bit about 1 Samuel. In the original, there's no division between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. It was all written as one coherent uh, book. The division that occurs here between 1 Samuel 31 and 2 Samuel 1 is really unfortunate. I think the division should have come at the end of this chapter because chapter 1 flows directly out of the events in 1 Samuel 31. It's an artificial break, but unfortunately, there are too many uh, times when chapter divisions and verse divisions create an artificial break. So uh, it's divided this way because of how much could be written on a scroll, and so it became known actually at the beginning in in a Hebrew Bible. It was 1 Kingdoms, 2 Kingdoms. Third kingdoms and fourth kingdoms. We have first and second Samuel and then first and second kings. But that's, uh, originally it was, uh, written that way. When the Bible was written, remember, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse divisions. That wasn't part of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Those were added much, much later. The chapter breaks that we have Uh, are the result of the work of Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, He died not long after that, so somewhere right toward the end of his life, around 1226, 1227, just think about that, 1,200 years or 1,100 years since since the closing of the canon before there were chapter divisions. The Old Testament had some divisions. They were called parashot. And these were a part of the readings of the law and other large divisions, but they certainly were not uh, the uh, basic divisions that we have today. Uh, Stephen Langton was an interesting character. He was the archbishop during the reign of King John. You remember King John as Prince John in the stories about Robin Hood, that he's uh, the bad king that's the brother of of uh, Richard the Lionheart. It was Richard, though, who was 
kind of an irresponsible king because he's out of the... I think he only spent a year in England in his 11-year reign. The rest of the time he's off in the Crusades, and he left uh, Prince John in charge. And when Prince John became King John, then he was something of a tyrant, and the barons of England gathered together, and they forced him to sign a document called the Magna Carta. And the Magna Carta is the foundation, really, of English common law. And it, at its core is the idea that the king serves at the request of the barons. And that's an important idea that comes down through uh, much of British history. The king is not autonomous. The king serves at the pleasure of the barons and ultimately at the pleasure of the people. That ran into a huge conflict in the early 1600s with the uh, Stuart kings and their concept of divine divine right leading to the uh, uh, arrest and execution of King Charles I and that whole chapter in British history. But Langdon was an archbishop. He was uh, one of those who was on the side of the barons, and he signed the Magna Carta and was uh, for his efforts. He was removed from his office by the pope. The um, These chapter divisions were first uh, added in a published Bible to the Wycliffe translation in 1382, and since then, all English Bibles and virtually all Bibles in the world have followed those chapter divisions that Langton came up with. The uh, verse divisions came, um, even though the Old Testament verse divisions were added by a Jewish rabbi in uh, approximately 1448. That's just 50 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And in... Um, 1555, a generation after the Protestant Reformation began, there was a Protestant uh, theologian named uh, Robert Stevens who, uh, the legend is that as he was riding on horseback uh, from Paris to Lyon, France, he versified the New Testament. So that may explain why some of the verses are kind of odd. But uh, if you look at your Bible and you're looking up John 3.16 or 1 John 1.9, those chapter divisions are the result of the work of Robert, I mean, of Stephen Langdon and the verse divisions of Robert uh, Etienne. Just uh, this came up Saturday morning at the men's prayer breakfast. There are 1,189 chapters in your Bible. So if you want to decide on your own how much you want to read every week, you can divide your chapters uh, that way and divide that by 52 weeks and decide how much you want to read each week. There's 929 chapters in the 39 books of the Old Testament, and there are 260 chapters in the 27 books of the New Testament. There are 23,145 verses in the Old Testament and 7,957 verses in the New Testament. Somebody asked, well, how many words are there? Well, that depends on the translation and which, which New Testament or Old Testament manuscript you're looking at. But that's a total of 31,102 verses comes out to an average of 26 verses per chapter, although we know there's some chapters that are much, much longer than that and many that are much shorter than that. So 
That's a little background why we get into a first Samuel and second Samuel and this division. In first Samuel, I'm going to outline this as if it's one book. We saw that the first seven chapters was God's preparation to deliver the uh, nation Israel from her enemies by grace. Notice when I outline history, narrative history in the Old Testament, I always try to start with God doing something because God's really the hero. There may be some individual human heroes within the text, but the ultimate hero of the Bible is God and his grace. So I try the best I can to to state things in terms of what God is doing in the scripture. So God prepares to deliver the nation uh, <clears throat> from her enemies by grace and her primary enemy at the beginning, the Philistines. And what happens in those first seven chapters? Remember, they're defeated at the battle <clears throat> of, of uh, Ebenezer, and the ark is captured in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And the nation comes under, once again, the oppression of the Philistines. And they're under the oppression of the Philistines at the very beginning of the book. And how does it this that end? It ends with this massive defeat at Mount Gilboa, where Saul and his three sons are all killed. And at the end of that part, in the English breakdown, or even the Hebrew breakdown of that book, you find that Israel hasn't advanced any carnality doesn't provide freedom and it provides slavery in the second division god provides the office of king but the people have asked for a king for all the wrong reasons because they want to be like everybody else they're looking to other cultures and other nations as their standard instead of looking to god for the standard and so god gives them a man after their heart who is saul and that is going to prepare them to understand that for them to have blessing, they have to have a man like David, who is a man after God's own heart. In the third division, God decreases the influence of Saul. as Saul has been rebellious, and uh, that is compared to witchcraft and divination. Rebellion against God is a, is a horrible sin. And so D Saul is going to be disciplined by God, culminating in his sin unto death on Mount Gilboa in First uh, Samuel chapter 31. And this will set the stage for David finally becoming king, and that becomes the focal point in Second Samuel 2 through 10. This is, sometimes this is referred to as David's triumphs in those uh, passages, God will bless David, expand the kingdom, expand David's influence uh, in those chapters. And then the fifth division, which again is another, is from Second Samuel 11 to 20, another 10, uh, 10 chapters. God will discipline David for his sin. And because David humbles himself and he confesses his sin, God will transform that bless, that cursing into blessing. And so again, we see God's grace manifested in uh, the period known as David's tragedies. And then the last part, the last four chapters, uh, are really a set of six instances that are an appendix to the whole book. They're not chronological, and they are different ways to demonstrate God's blessing to David 
uh, through the Davidic covenant. That's the background to God's blessing for David there. So that's our general outline, and we'll be looking at that more and more as we go through our, our study. I'm going to wait until next time to give a flyover of Second Samuel since the first chapter is really wrapping up the end of the events that occurred in First uh, in Samuel. So as we look at the situation, we're reminded of the close of First Samuel that starting in <clears throat> back in about verse uh, 20, uh, 21, or 22, we see this, the, the writer shifting. He's presenting a series of events that are taking place in Israel's history, but since they're happening at the same time, he first focuses on Saul, then he focuses on David and back to Saul, and so it switches back and forth, ends with Saul and his death at the end of chapter 31, and then it shifts to David and <clears throat> his response in reaction to the report of Saul's death in <clears throat> excuse me in second samuel uh chapter chapter one at the close of of first uh, Samuel in first Samuel chapter uh, thirty one we see Saul's death on Mount Gilboa. This was covered in uh the lesson one o four uh, from 105 to 113, we were covering Psalm 18. But this is, uh, uh, so you can go back and pick up that if you missed it. And uh, and this is the how David learns of Saul's death. Now, what had happened is this gives you a map here locating uh, the area up here, which is on the, this is the Jezreel Valley com- coming down. And it looks like I moved the map a little bit. I'm going to see if this actually works. Yeah, I'm going to reposition that. There we go. Okay, so here's Mount Gilboa right here. Here's the Jezreel Valley running from northwest to southeast. Here's the Sea of Galilee to the north. This is the Jordan River Valley. These are the areas that are significant in this story. There's Mount Gilboa, and over here just to the west of Mount Gilboa, is Beit Shan. Now, if you go to Israel, or you've been to Israel with me, then you uh, have been to Beit Shan. We don't go there from Mount Gilboa. We usually go up north and do Galilee and then come back down. So we we miss seeing that uh, geographical connection. But this is the area. And then David is down here in Ziklag. We're not absolutely certain where Ziklag was located, but uh, most put it somewhere in this area in the southern, uh, neg- down in the Negev on the edge of the territory with the Philistines. And this is where David and his mighty men and all of their families have been living. And what we saw at the end of Second uh, Samuel is that David went down in chapter 30 to uh, fight the Amalekites because while he had... Uh, <clears throat> been part of the uh, part of the Philistine army that had uh, gathered together at Aphek in preparation for the assault into into the northern part of Israel. The Amalekites had raided there in in uh, Ziklag and had not killed any of their families, but they had 
captured their families. And that was that that whole episode reminds us of God's grace because some pe- there, there's different ideas on whether David was sinning or David was foolish. I think it might not have been the greatest decision to go live with the with the Philistines, but God protected him anyway. And the principle we learn from that is even when we make foolish decisions, God still watches over us. He still protects us. He still guides and directs us. It's a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. When we trust in the Lord and commit our way to him, he makes our path straight. So even when we make them crooked with some uh, bad or foolish decisions, he straightens those things out for us, and we can look back over the course of our lives and see how he has done that. So David and his men were part of the Philistine army, which meant they were going to have to fight the Israelites. But God intervened. The other Philistine lords looked at um, Achish and said, what is that Israelite doing with your army? We don't trust him, send him home. So that protected David and his men from fighting their own people. And therefore, when Saul was killed, David had no role in it. That's part of sort of an apologetic purpose to this whole episode is that David can say that he had nothing to do with making himself king. That's an important principle, that his promotion is due to God and not due, his, due to his own uh, manipulation of events. We saw that because David refused to uh, he refused to take Saul's life when he had the opportunity to take Saul's life. He trusted in God to promote him at the right time in the right way. And this is also the backdrop for understanding what's happening in Second Samuel chapter 1, is David recognizes that God's plan has to be carried out the right way at the right time and not be manipulated by his own uh, by his own efforts. He's very concerned with God getting all of the glory. So they had taken off with the Philistines. They got to uh, Aphek here. They got sent back when they came home. Their families were all gone. The, the, the ta- their town had been raided and uh, plundered. And so then they followed the uh, Amalekites down south until they could raid them, defeat them, uh, <clears throat> rescue their families, and bring them back to bring them back home. While that is going on in First uh, Samuel chapter thirty, uh, then the events of First Samuel thirty-one took place when the Philistines invaded up into the valley, into the Jezreel Valley, and their encampment was in the area of Shunem. And the Israelites are down here in this lighter blue arrow. They are bivouacked along the shoulder of Mount Gilboa. This is what Mount Gilboa looks like. The area here on the lower uh, area is also where Herod Spring is located. That's where Gideon thinned out the 300. So, uh, So many events happen right there. Uh, in very close proximity in the Jezreel Valley. Now, what we're told is kind of interesting. There's a parallel to 1 Samuel 31 in Second, I mean, in First Chronicles chapter 10. Some of what is recorded in First Chronicles 10 is just a repeat. It's word for word the same as what you find in First Samuel. And and the reason I'm going back over this is because one of the controversies about Second Samuel 1 
is there are those who doubt the veracity of Scripture, and so they'll say, oh, there's one account of Saul's death in chapter 31, and there's another account of Saul's death from this Amalekite uh, servant in chapter 1. Well, the obvious explanation is that we're told by the writer of 1 Samuel that exactly what happened to Saul, it's repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 10. Now, there's also additional information given in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, but what we have in 2 Samuel 1 is the uh, <clears throat> report that has been changed we now have, it's a fake news report, and the purpose for this is so that this Amalekite warrior will uh, bring honor to himself. Look what I did, David. I, I did something great for you. I killed Saul. Now you don't have that problem anymore. And in the ancient world, a person who did that would be would expect great rewards and to be promoted. And when David came into his kingdom, he would be given a high position. So he's expecting that. It's all about self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. So we see that uh, the report on Saul's death is the uh, battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him. He's severely wounded. He's fatally wounded. But he doesn't want to live long enough for the Philistines to capture him, to mutilate him, and to torture him. And so what happens then is he says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through, lest these uncircumcised men, these pagans, come and abuse me. And what he means by that is mutilate and torture me. But his armor bearer wouldn't do it. He's not going to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He understands that. So he is greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword. He fell on it. He committed suicide. It's a sin unto death. And then we're told, this is, information's not in uh, 1 Samuel, that when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. And Saul and his three sons died together. I think that I just misspoke. I think all that is in 1 Samuel. It's the next part that's not in 1 Samuel, is that when the Philistines discovered Saul's body the next day, they stripped off all of his armor, they decapitated him, and they took uh, and they proclaimed the news in their temple, the temple of Dagon. You remember earlier there's this conflict between Yahweh and Dagon when they've captured the ark. They take the ark and put it in the temple of Dagon in, in uh, Ekron and in Gaza and Gath. They move it around because uh, there's always bad things that happen. And so when they put it in the temple of, of Dagon, they wake up the next morning and Dagon is bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant. And so then the next, they set him back up and the next morning they come in and he's bowing down and now his feet and his hands have been cut off. Uh, so this is uh, God is showing his superiority just because he allowed Israel to be defeated doesn't mean that God is impotent or that Dagon is more powerful. So they take this. They understand that warfare, that what happens between nations is often a reflection of what is happening in the angelic conflict. Everything is motivated, as I teach again and again, motivated by religious belief. And we certainly have that today with the war with Islam, because Islam, whether they are uh, vocalizing a jihadi philosophy, 
is still based on the Quran, which is a a religious book that predicts the and demands the destruction of and murder of all uh, infidels, all Christians and all Jews. And when you live in a secular world, secular society as we do, where people don't understand the religious motivation anymore, then they downplay this. And the blindness that we see in among American, some American politicians and among many European politicians uh, is, is leading them to their own destruction because they, they do not believe that, that Muslims really believe this. And yet this is what, if they are consistent with their uh, holy book, this is what they are commanded to do, is to destroy all other religions violently. By the way, this is going to be the topic at the Chafer Conference in March. We have Sharam Hadian, who is a former Muslim, who is now a pastor. He converted to Christianity. He was saved when he was in college. And he spoke a couple of years ago at uh, Sugarland Bible Church, at uh, uh, Pastor Andy Wood's church. Some of you went to that. He will be coming, and he will be teaching eight sessions during the pastor's conference on the reality of Islam and what is going on. So it will be an outstanding uh, session. But we see the religious motivation that took place among the Philistines as they're taking the armor of Saul and putting it in the in Dagon's temple, and they put his head in Dagon's temple. You see the same kind of thing going on with Islam. If you go to Israel, you go up on the Mount of Olives, you walk up to where you are standing at the same elevation as the top of the Dome of the Rock, which is a uh, uh, the Mosque of Omar, which is right there on the site of Israel's temple. And then you look past the Dome of the Rock, you'll see the two domes of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And what you will notice is that the dome of the Dome of the Rock is higher than the domes of the Holy Sepulchre. And that's intentional. It is saying we're higher, we are superior to Christianity. And if we were able to go into the Dome of the Rock, you can Google this and find this uh, out on the Internet, and you look at the Arabic writings on the inside of the Dome of the Rock, they are all verses out of the Quran that blaspheme uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that deny his deity, deny him as Savior, deny uh, many things about him. And so that whole monstrosity is a visual assault on the truth of Christianity and a statement that Islam is superior to Christianity. And the fact that that is never taught and nobody ever understands that is just a way in which we give a victory to Muslims. The whole Islamic religion is right out of the pit of hell. It is Satan's, probably his greatest religion. And I believe that Allah is just another name, not for El, the God mentioned in the Bible, but that that uh, Allah is just a uh, another name for Lucifer or Satan. In First Chronicles 10, it goes on to say, why Saul died. He died for his unfaithfulness. He was disobedient to, to God <clears throat> for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord. He was commanded to kill every man, woman, and child and all of the livestock of the Amalekites, and he didn't do it. 
and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. He was involved in demonism. Uh, uh, Verse 14 says, But he did not inquire of the Lord. He sought guidance from demons. Therefore God killed him and turned the king over to David, the son of Jesse. Notice that even though he fell on his sword, God is the one who takes credit for the death of Saul. Now this is an aerial picture here. In the background, you see this ridge. This is the uh, Mount Gilboa, and I don't know if you can tell, but it's got a dark green line at the top. That's where it's forested, but on this side, it is barren. We'll get to why that is barren in a little while later on, or at least the explanation for it. In the foreground here, you have the the Greek city, one of the ten cities uh, of the Decapolis that are mentioned in the New Testament. This is Bechan. And this tell here, this this uh, hill at the very top is where they've uh, uncovered the ancient city of Beit Shan. This is where Saul's body was hung on the wall of Beit Shan, and then the men of Jabesh-Gilead came and took it down and brought it across to the east side of the Jordan uh, to bury it. That brings us to the beginning of Second Samuel chapter 1. Now, in this chapter, as I said already, the writer shifts our attention back to David. What is going on with David? Saul is dead. His body is being desecrated in his defeat. But David, in contrast, has been victorious over the Amalekites, whom Saul had refused to annihilate. The result for Saul is divine discipline and his ultimate death. And because David has faithfully carried out the harem law against the Amalekites in the south, God is blessing him. He continues to carry out the will of God. Now, that's important because who's the major figure that is introduced in chapter 1 of Second Samuel? It's the messenger who brings the news about Saul. And this messenger is not a Philistine. He's not a Jew. He is an Amalekite. And so when we understand why David had him executed, it wasn't just because he was he lied, but David didn't know he lied, but he claimed to have killed Saul, but because he's also an Amalekite. And because he's an Amalekite, he needs to be destroyed, still under the law of the, of the, of the harem. So as we look at this, we see that contrast, comparison and contrast being brought out between Saul and his failure, David and his uh, successes. And so what has happened, I'm going to go back to this map slide here. Uh, what has happened here is that the Philistines have mounted this major campaign, and the goal is to split Israel in two to capture the major trade routes. That's what's indicated here by these tan lines. These are the major trade routes. Here's your route by the sea, uh, the Via Maris over here, and you also have another route that came down and crossed through the valley uh, of Jezreel. 
uh, right where this junction takes place, it's under that purple arrow, is where Megiddo was located. And there are, they've discovered uh, almost uh, 30 different layers of civilization there at Megiddo. It was a fortress that was designed to protect these trade routes. So the Philistines have mounted this invasion to split Israel in two and to capture the trade routes so that they can exercise an economic superiority over over Israel. Economics all, always plays a major role in, in wars. Uh, the defeat of Israel is a major defeat. We're told in First Chronicles 10 that they captured and moved into many of the Israelites' cities. They've lost control. They've lost the uh, trade routes. They've virtually become... Uh, economic and and physical slaves uh, to the Philistines. And at this time, of course, they are rejoicing over the death of Saul and his three sons. So we read here in verses 1 and 2, came to pass after the death of Saul when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites David had stayed two days in Ziklag. So the writer wants us to understand precisely what the time frame is. This is two days after the, that he's won the, his battle in Ziklag. Saul's been defeated up on Mount Gilboa. And on the third day, so David is still recovering. The men have been tired from their march and their battle. And it happens that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So this is a sign of his grief that he is showing his his grief for the death of Saul and the loss of the battle. What his motivation might be has been questioned by some, but uh, later in verse 13, he says that he is, uh, his father was an Amalekite who was a sojourner, a gur is the Hebrew word. That word gur is used uh, of... of um, of the patriarchs. They were sojourners in the land God promised them. So it's not a bad word. It is a word for uh, someone who is an immigrant who is not settled. So that's his father, but this man was born uh, in Israel, but he is still considered a resident alien, and of course he is an Amalekite. So he he comes and he's showing his uh, grief, and he's probably feigning that because he's really there to get spoils of war. And if he can tell David what David wants to hear, then he'll get a high position. He'll get some monetary reward. So it's all about what he's going to get out of it. So he falls down before David, and he shows his um, uh, respect for David. And then David begins to interrogate him as to what is going on. And David says to him in verse 3, where have you come from? And that is similar to the question that uh, Eli asked the messenger who came to him from the battle of Aphek and Ebenezer to report the defeat of the Israelites and the capture uh, of the ark. Similar question. He just asking for a report. And so the Amalekite says to him, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. Now, as soon as he uses that word, obviously it's ominous. Why would he have to escape unless something bad has happened? 
And so David said, well, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he reported that the people have fled from the battle and uh, many of the people are fallen and Saul and Jonathan have fallen also. And so this is quite a catastrophe because uh, uh, the sons of uh, Saul, you have uh, 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 you have uh, Jonathan is the only one that is mentioned. The others are not mentioned uh, by name, uh, but there are three sons that are that are killed during that particular uh, particular battle. And so he would think that uh, this is good news for David. But I want you to put yourself for a minute in David's shoes. Uh, David is tired. His men are tired. They've just returned from this battle with the Amalekites. They're also in a very positive frame of mind because they brought back their families, but they're coming back to their city that's been devastated and has been plundered and burned and much destruction from the uh, from the the Amalekites, and so they have to uh, rebuild that that city. It's also interesting that David is not reported to have sent any messengers or runners off to find out what is going on in the battle. And one would expect that that he would rejoice over Saul's death because Saul has been persecuting him. But that isn't what we see here. Uh, We don't see David taking this personally. He's looking at this whole event from the perspective of, of God. Uh, even though David has been chased for probably 10 or 12 years by Saul, and he's had he's been separated from his best friend Jonathan, he's had his wife taken away from him and married off to somebody else, he's had to uh, move his family to Moab so that they are, are protected, and he's been uh, chased by Saul uh, to take his life through through most of this time. So we can put ourselves in a similar situation. Maybe we've been in a work environment where somebody's had it out for us. We've had an employer that uh, has had it out for us that has, for one reason or another, uh, is not uh, pleased with us. And so we are being unjustly, uh, we we don't get good reviews. We don't get good um, evaluation reports. And we have somebody t- dealing with us very unjustly. That's the kind of situation that David's had. Or maybe it's a parental problem. And some people grow up and they have parents that are uh, unfair and unjust, or they think they do. And they think this gives them a right in either case to rebel against that authority. But that is not something that the Lord uh, authorizes unless that authority is telling us to do something that is not biblical or not the Lord's will. In verse 5, David goes on to say, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? So he's wondering if he's got firsthand information. How did he hear this? Does he know it himself? Did he hear it uh, from somebody else? And so he uh, says that it happened by chance to be on Mount Goboa, There was Saul leaning on his spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, the term that is translated young man is a word that could also mean a servant. So he could have had a a supportive role uh, around Saul where he's taking care of 
uh, armor or taking care of animals or taking care of uh, other equipment. And then so he's close by, close enough to witness what went on. But his description of what happened doesn't match the description that's given in 1 Samuel 31. He says Saul was leaning on his spear. Spear's not mentioned over there. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. In other words, he's saying that he's being surrounded uh, by the enemy. And in verse 7, he says, Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered and said, Here I am. And he said, Who are you? And the man replied, I am an Amalekite. Now that would be an odd way to identify yourself in the midst of this battle. And he's again identified as an Amalekite in verse 13, which tells us that the writer wants us to really pay attention to the fact that he's an Amalekite. And so he reports that Saul said, Stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. And so the man claims that he stood over him and killed Saul. Well, what David hears is you've killed the Lord's anointed. He's not thinking you've killed my enemy. You've killed the guy who's forced me to be on the run for all these years. You've killed the man that God appointed and anointed to be king over Israel. Now, one of the things that's hard for us to understand is how you can have this level of respect for someone in an office who doesn't merit the respect, whose personal life and whose personal actions in that role are not worthy of respect. We see that in cases, many, many cases of employers. We see it in cases of people in Congress, and we see it in leaders who have been in the White House. And yet what we see taught again and again in Scripture is that we are to be respectful and obedient to those in authority because of the office they hold, even if they don't personally uh, require that respect, even though they are unworthy of it. And we see this tremendous example. This is grace in action on the part of David. He has such respect, not for Saul personally, but for his office, that he is the Lord's anointed. And so Uh, This is what David would hear from this. And then this man says, See, I took a crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Now, let me say something about this. In the ancient world, kings would be identified by some sort of distinctive dress or ornamentation during the battle. He's not wearing like a dress crown as you'd often see pictured in uh, artwork or something of that nature. It was probably something that was uh, very, very simple. Uh, One writer who is uh, uh, an archaeologist, a very well-known Roland DeVoe, says that, that it was probably some ornament on his helmet that was like a flower of gold or something like that that was very simple that would identify who he was. And he would have also have worn something, some sort of armband that would have gone along with that, identifying uh, who he was. And so this uh, Amalekite has taken that. Now, what's interesting is he's not a thief. He's not taking these things to enrich himself. He's taking these things and he's bringing them to David. So that's a positive thing. But the negative thing is he thinks that this is going to somehow 
allow him to curry favor uh, with David. And it is just a picture of how many unbelievers and many carnal believers operate, uh, live on the basis of arrogance. He's totally, in the midst of this great defeat, he's totally focused on what he's going to get out of it. And he expects David to be thinking the same way. That is carnality. It's arrogance. And so a couple of principles. We need to recognize that every believer is open to arrogance and pride at any particular time and has the opportunity thereby to destroy his own life. All we have to do is shift from thinking about serving the Lord to serving ourselves, where it's all about us. We see this in passages like Proverbs 11.2, 1 Peter 5.5, that we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, uh, and Hebrews 4.31, as the Lord learned humility uh, by the thing, through the things that he suffered. Humility is obedience to authority. Second thing is we see that a shift in focus from God to self opens the door to sin nature control and the entire realm of mental attitude sins. Arrogance brings with it bitterness and anger, revenge motivation, all kinds of different types of sins. Hypersensitivity, and we see that everywhere today. People are offended by the least thing that they shouldn't even pay attention to, much less be offended by. Uh, inordinate ambition, uh, inordinate competition, vindictiveness, and implacability, all of this is part of the complex of mental attitude sins. And this shift in focus then leads to personal disruption. It's, it is a way to destroy your own life, and it creates a polarization and breakdown in relationships. It's arrogance is the opposite of love and destroys love. In 1 Corinthians 13.4, that we're told that love is not arrogant. You can't love when you're self-absorbed. 1 Corinthians 13.5, love does not seek its own. It is not self-absorbed. And so that right away tells us that we've got a major problem in our culture that people who think and talk a lot about love have no idea what it is because they're operating totally on self-love. A fourth thing we can observe here is a, this is an attempt at self-promotion, and it leads to an imbalanced and unrealistic view of self. It distorts your view of reality. And this, again, we see and with with so many in the characteristic of the uh, often applied to the millennials, but it just is true for baby boomers and everybody who's a uh, fallen sinner, is that we distort the world. We are suppressing truth and unrighteousness, so we replace it with a fantasy view, and that includes with with it unrealistic expectations and an inability to perceive God's will and purpose for our life. And the result is we make bad decisions, which the Bible identifies as foolishness. The principle that David is operating on is to understand that if God doesn't promote you, you aren't promoted. And as he says in the Psalms, unless God builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And one of the last things that happen is that when we get involved in this kind of uh, disruption from arrogance, 
is it is always manifested in a lack of respect for authority, and it leads to the breakdown of marriage, of family, of schools, of government, and of the workplace. Now, in verse 11, we see David's personal response. David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. We see his grief manifested and all the men with him. And there's a period of time when they are going to mourn and weep and fast. Uh, This is not uncommon. There's a, a similar passage, a similar event that takes place in Judges chapter 20, verse 26, as there they are experiencing a military defeat as well. And so uh, they go through this period of of mourning. But then after some time goes by, in verse 13, we're told that David wants more information. He goes through a time of grief, and he's but he's not emotional here. There's nothing here, as I've read through this many times, uh, there's no emotion here on the part of David. He's not reacting in anger or resentment or vindictiveness towards this Amalekite. I read uh, one commentator who says, well, David in anger does this. No, he's not angry. He's not emotional. He is doing what the law says to do. First of all, this is an Amalekite who's under the harem law and should therefore be killed. Secondly, he has claimed uh, that he has killed the, the anointed of the Lord, and therefore he should be executed for that. It is capital punishment, and it's spelled out in the Mosaic Law. And David is concerned about being constitutional. He's going to carry out the Constitution of Israel, uh, which is which is the law of the land. And so David is going to do the right thing, the righteous thing, the legal thing, and he orders the execution of the Amalekite in verses 15 and 16. And in verse 16, he makes a clear statement that his death, your blood, is on your head. You're responsible for your death because of what you did. You killed the Lord's anointed. David is not the one who's responsible. He's just carrying out the law. You're responsible for your own decisions, and if you violate the law, then you have to pay uh, pay the uh, price, whatever that might be. And then we come to the uh, conclusion in the last part, which we can cover fairly, fairly br- uh, briefly. Uh, David is uh, giving a requiem or an elegy for Saul. It's a funeral dirge. That's what is stated there, use of the word kina, the Hebrew word. Then David lamented with this lament. It was a special form of a mourning song over someone who had died. And it was written for a pedagogical purpose, to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Uh, it's indeed he's written in the book of Yasher. We don't have that. That didn't survive. It's mentioned also in uh, in Joshua, uh, but it is a book in Joshua ten thirteen, a book of the military uh, history of, of of Israel. And so David is writing this to teach about uh, the 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 heroes of Israel. That that it's it's not extolling the personal spirituality of J- David or Jonathan. That's not the focal point. The focal point is to remember 
what happens to Israel when Israel has been disobedient to God and the dishonor it brings to God when they are defeated. And that is the the background for this. Uh, He says in verse uh, 19, the beauty of Israel, that's a figure of speech for the anointed one of, of Israel. He's slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Three times that phrase is used, which is why I chose that as the title for this message, how the mighty have fallen. Now, he recognizes the carnality, the mention of the phrase high places. He mentions, recognizes carnality in the part of, of, uh, of uh, Saul, but that's he's not focusing on Saul's negatives here because it really isn't about Saul. It's about God's honor being besmirched by Saul's defeat and the defeat of the armies of Israel. This dishonors God, even though the cause is Saul's carnality and the carnality of Israel. It gives God's enemies an opportunity to ridicule God and to ridicule God's people. And we see the same kind of thing that happens even today when Christians in public life fail in sometimes uh, dramatic and miserable fashions. It gives people who are unbelievers an opportunity to ridicule Christianity and talk about why it doesn't do anybody any good and things of that nature. So this is what David is lamenting here, that God's enemies have had a victory. And because of that, God has been dishonored. And so he says, don't tell it in the cities of the enemy. Don't tell, talk about it in Gath or Ashkelon, because then the, the enemies of God will rejoice. The daughters of the Philistines will rejoice, and the daughters of the uncircumcised will triumph. So this is a matter of shame for Israel that this defeat has taken, uh, taken place. And then in verse 21, there's a statement, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. Now, the first part is taken to be a curse on Mount Gilboa because this is where the anointed of the Lord was killed. And if you notice on the picture here, this is one side of Gilboa. You see that there's forest on the top, but on this side, it's dry. It doesn't receive the same rainfall as the other side of Mount Gilboa. And I have heard this from uh, my guides in Israel, and they trace this back. They say, see, this is uh, all goes back to David's curse on Mount Gilboa. Here's another picture of the barren side of, of Mount Gilboa. And you can see it again from this aerial shot. And then you see on this other side, there's trees and forest, and it's uh, quite a contrast. But when we look at that verse, it goes on to talk about the shield of the mighty. And that's a way of talking about Saul's military achievements. Because remember, Saul had great victories over the Philistines early in his reign. He also had a great victory, though it was an incomplete victory, over the Amalekites. He was a warrior, and he provided victories for Israel. So he was a mighty one in um, in many ways. And so the shield of the mighty is just a figure of speech for, for Saul and the mighty warriors of Israel. And the fact that it's not anointed with oils because it's wasting away 
now on the battlefield and will no longer be in use. Verse 22, he says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan, that is really talking, his weapon is put for him. Uh, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. He, as a warrior, did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return empty. They killed many in the battle. And then he goes on to say about them in verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They died together. And then using the comparison with eagles and lions, uh, which is typical in much of uh, the Old Testament, he's extolling them. They were great warriors. He's not talking about them in terms of their spirituality. He's talking in terms of the fact that they had a great military uh, had provided great military victories in the past, and they were the leaders of Israel. And then he calls upon the daughters of Israel to weep over Saul, uh, to mourn him, and to put on, um, because he clothed them in scarlet and put ornaments of gold on them. There was some economic prosperity uh, with with Saul. And so he is focusing on the good He's ignoring the bad, and he's emphasizing that that it was through Saul that nevertheless God still provide some, provided some uh, blessing for, uh, for Israel. And then he concludes in verses 25 to 27, twice stating how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. He expresses his uh, personal uh, grief over Jonathan, Jonathan was slain in your high places. And then in verse 26, I'm very distressed by you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of a woman. Now, liberals come along and try to read something homosexual into that, and that's the farthest thing. He's just talking about how great his personal love for his friend Jonathan was, as we have seen. And then he concludes how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And you see, weapons don't perish, but those who wield the weapons perish. And so he concludes this lament, uh, expressing his grief over the death of Saul and Jonathan. And that really concludes that last part of 1 Samuel uh, with the end of Saul's reign. And then chapter 2, we begin with David being anointed the king over Judah. Not all the tribes yet, but just the king over Judah. And we'll begin there, and I'll do an overview of Second Samuel uh, next week. Uh, Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, study these things, to learn lessons about uh, life from the uh, lives of uh, Saul, David, the Amalekite, and Father, that we may learn to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, to follow David in his graciousness and humility towards even unrighteous uh, kings who were bent on his destruction, always walking in obedience to you and desiring to fulfill uh, your your law above all things. And we pray that we might learn from that example. In Christ's name, amen.